What up, everybody? We are back. Oasis Podcast, uh, a topic that we are going to crush for you today. But that is a that it, it's a little <laughs> simple statement. It's all oh, we're going to crush it. I'm confident in our ability <laughs> and glad, the Word of God to answer this question. I'm more confident in the Word of God than our ability. <laughs> there we go. Yes. There you go. Priorities in line. Actually, I'm more confident in God than our, the Word of God. And so here's God. the thing, though. Here's the thing. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Here's the thing. <laughs> We got to talk about a lot today. There's yeah. a ton in this outline, and this is a big question. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have either thought this or have encountered this in a different way. So, I don't want us to spend too much time messing around, but I do have to ask you this. Fall's right around the corner. Okay. What are you most excited about for fall? Sweaters and shorts. Together? Uh, yep. I like, where, <laughs> I like the weather to where it's, I can wear shorts still, but I'd like, but you I like a hoodie. Wear, uh, a hoodie. Okay. Yeah, I don't like okay. that you said sweater. I know. I was picturing like a cardigan, yeah. <laughs> like basketball shorts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben would do that though. I yeah, did see thousand it. percent, yeah. hundred percent. With a hat on, I have done that. But I do like sweatshirt, short weather. Yeah, yeah. That's why Colorado's the best. Colorado in the summer, why do you it's hate like South Dakota? beautiful. Go mm. swimming in the day, but then you can put a hoodie on at night because it's like, oh man, it is the it best weather ever. Oh, nice. Jaina, what do you think about fall? <laughs> Ben's gonna hate my answer, but. I'm a big fan of Halloween. I love spooky season. I just think it's so fun. So any any fall spooky season activity, I'm down. There you go. <laughs> spooky. Um, I would. There's a lot of things I love about fall. Definitely my favorite season. Uh, I would probably say football, though. I'm not the world's biggest football fan, but there is something about it's on mm. TV. You can go to Jack's games. Like yeah. I have a couple football teams I really love. So I do like I do like the football season. All right. It brings about like a little bit that's of excitement for it. Plus, yeah. I Boys sometimes fall. I sometimes play fantasy, and that's a good old time. Yeah, there you uh, go. So there, I'm excited for that mm. for fall. Now we're not messing around. We're, we're into the topic, it. and we're talking about the Bible. And we're honestly going to step in and do a little defense of the Bible, the Word of God, this morning because there are people, probably people you know, maybe it's even you, who have asked this question of: Is the Bible sexist? Or is it racist? Or is it both? Mm -hmm. Because there's passages of scripture, which if we remove context, and we remove prior knowledge, and we remove the character of God, and we read them just for what is in that sentence or that little paragraph, that can look like the Bible is against women or against people of color or certain nations or tribes. And so, Non-Christians love to do this because they they don't want to assert the authority of Scripture. Yeah. But even sometimes Christians wrestle with, oh, man, I read that, and that doesn't sit well with me. And I don't really understand it, and, and I'm confused. And so they ask these questions. And we just wanted to come and be straight with you guys. Mm-hmm. So we're going to open up some of these passages of Scripture. I think we've got five or six of them where people have used them to point to the Bible either being sexist or racist. And we're going to chat about it. So yeah. we're going to start talking about sexism. And before we even dive too deep into it, some of you might notice some of the similarities and the nuances between this podcast and a one an episode we did prior. So episode twenty two, we talked about women in ministry, and the reason we talked we, about we're pro, just to we're, give you a yeah, yeah. we're pro. Uh, Jaina's here, so we we have to say that. No, we have to say that because Jaina's here. I'm just kidding. If I wasn't here, they would say what they really think. Uh, you guys can go ahead and just DM the Instagram to cancel Brenda anytime. <laughs> I love women. <laughs> the pause of the what? end of that sentence. My favorite part about this is I didn't derail this. No. It's like the first time that I haven't derailed the podcast. And, and we have so much to cover, and I've got to. <laughs> we got to rein it in. I've got to rein it in. Okay. 
So if you recognize the nuances and the similarities, it's because we have chatted about some of these scriptures before, but we wanted to come back to them again and add in a couple different ones to be able to fully round out this idea that the Bible is not sexist, but some people claim it to be. So what's the first text we want to look at when looking at, does the Bible dislike or look down upon women? Let's start with the first book of the Bible, Brennan. Let's go. Genesis, it's it's a marriage text. It is a text where God created Adam and then realized that Adam shouldn't be alone. Hmm. And so he says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. So he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then God goes about like he created all the animals. So then Adam literally got to name all the animals. And in that process, he was supposed to find a helper, which is interesting and weird. <laughs> if you really think about ultimately what ends up happening. And so all of a sudden he names all these animals, right? It was really cool. And then gets to the end of it. It's like, all right, realize, okay, there's no suitable helper. In these, and so he literally puts Adam to sleep, like knocks him out cold, and creates what we know as woman. And so this woman is suitable helper for Adam. That gets taken out of context. And so we read that at face value, and our English language, in my mind, doesn't do a great job of really describing and, and helping us understand what was written in the Hebrew in the Old Testament and in the Greek in the New Testament. And so what helpful suitable su- suitable helper means here is this Hebrew word azer. And it literally is defined as if you get the image of a military ally coming alongside someone or another person. So you have this azer coming alongside another person and going about and doing the things, helping each other do what is in front of them that needs to be accomplished. That is what that word means. And so we see that 21 times the Old Testament is twice for women, three for a powerful nation um, that, that, that helps Israel, so coming alongside, and then 16 times for God. God is described as azer, suitable helper for the people of Israel. That's what was created there when God created woman. It wasn't subordinate. It wasn't man being domineering that you come along, the woman comes underneath. It was literally alongside to help accomplish the tasks that were given to humans to accomplish. Like, and what's awesome is that, is that it says man can't do it alone, mm-hmm. meaning he needed help. So we need, like, I just love the idea of we need each other. Yeah. And so it wasn't woman is subordinate. It's no, woman actually isn't necessary mm-hmm. to get to oh, accomplish yeah. the things that God has asked us to do. Yeah. And not us as in men, us as in humans. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's so tricky because that one word can throw people through a whole loop. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, it's like this whole, it's supposed to ascribe worth to women and show them how, how valuable they are in the kingdom. But yet... When we read it with one word, it can th- totally throw, throw us, us off. off. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, it's a text that people will th- throw back at Christianity and say, God only made women to be helpers to yeah. man. Like, yes. what kind of God is that? Yep. But that's a, that is not at all what it's saying. Not mm-hmm. at all. Nope. So, what's another yeah. passage? Yeah, another one that often gets thrown out to uh, diminish women is Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. I know I used to be a word. That's a great word. <laughs> um, but it says... Verses 22 through 24 specifically say, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is a Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit to their husbands and everything. And what's really hard and frustrating about this passage is that these two verses are taken completely out of the context of what's around them. So the verse right before that, that starts this kind of section that in, in my Bible is labeled instructions for Christian households. That first verse says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the foundation. That's what we're working off of. That then he takes a, the writer takes a, a further step, Paul. Um, sometimes I 
just say the writer and like it's Paul. No, it's good. He yeah. takes this further step to to say, okay, you're going to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and mm. here's specific ways you're going to do this. Super good. So first, twenty two through twenty four, he addresses the wives. Hey, here, this is how you do it. Submit to your husbands, as uh, uh, Christ and the church. But then in twenty five, he goes on to say, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah. That's a sacrificial language. That's almost a bigger burden than just submitting to someone is to be completely sacrificial for them. Um, to 26, to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies who have loved his wife loves himself. Um, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ says the church. So for we are members of the body. Um, and so it just, we take this one specific two verses, three verses out of context and use it to say wives need to submit. They need to be subordinate to their husbands. And we often take the the second part of that, the equal um, out of it and, and not put that same pressure on the husbands to do what they're asked to do and then completely disregarding the fact that this is mutual. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, you're taking, yeah, it's again, taking the words at face value of what we think we yeah. mean in our context, in our mm-hmm. English, and missing completely what yeah. Paul is really trying to do here. Yeah. yeah. I was just listening to, uh, there's a pastor, her name is Jenny Allen, and uh, she's a phenomenal speaker and leader, but she was talking about this passage in Ephesians 5 and talking about her relationship to her husband. And to her, she takes it a little bit more literally than some people do, and she actually does see herself in a bit of a subordinate role to her husband in a submissive role, but not one that describes or or gives her any less worth or Mm -hmm. value or importance or love. And she she said this line, and it blew me away. She said, submission is protection. Yeah. And for her... Submitting to her husband in his leadership, as as uh, Paul says here, gives her protection under him, not less worth, but just mm-hmm. a right relationship to him in that she can trust him. He has her best interest in mind. She, he's going to lead their family and her in a way that's God-glorifying and honoring to her. And she was like, I just feel more protected yeah. than if I tried to take usurp this position of power. Or, yeah. or I don't know. It was just really, yeah. really powerful yeah. to me. Super good. And she, she talked about the church, too, and like submission to your local church gives you protection. Mm-hmm. You know, so then when people come at you and they say, hey, you're doing this, this, and this, you're saying, hey, I'm doing this under the authority of my church. And because of that, the people now have to look to the church, your your person, to find answers or to to come at what you're doing that they don't agree with. Yeah. So there's protection yeah. in that, yeah. and I love that. I thought that was so good. Yeah, and no. we always deem um, submission and subordination as negative terms, mm-hmm. as if they also imply or synonyms for weak and yeah. like. That's so good. It's not. Yeah, you do you good. do not have to be weak to be subordinate to someone above you. I mean, even if you look in like a work yeah, setting, correct. a good boss empowers the people underneath them to like use their strengths yeah. and there's a healthy relationship there. Um, and the same is true in marriage. Well, how much more powerful it is it and how much more does it speak of a character of someone who is able to submit and still lead well from this, oh, yeah. from a position of submit submission yeah. Yeah. and still equip their giftings and yeah. still live and impact people from like, that's humility. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the character in the heart of God to lead from that position. That's awesome. Which is why mm-hmm. I tend to go to mutual submission being sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and that's it's both right. ways. It's both, yeah, it goes both it's ways. Both ways yeah. And that's what's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You can and, be bold and strong 100%. and still submit. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and Paul, when he just finishes, like, 
how the relationship should end when the two of you are done doing the mutual submission is it's present <laughs> <laughs> to present her to himself as a radiant church. Yeah. Like that's beautiful. That's what it should end looking like. There's radiance, there's beauty, there's washing, there's cleansing. It's holiness that finds itself in this like there's no more there's no greater position of like worth and value mm-hmm. that the Bible could describe. That's awesome. So good. Okay, we got one more. And this one is 1 Corinthians 14. So again, Paul is getting the church in trouble by no, I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's go, Paul. In the verse 34 and 35, he writes, "Women should remain silent in the churches." And then he says, they are not to be allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And so people will take (laughs) this and they'll say, women can't speak in church. Why would I ever step into a church then? They don't want to hear my voice. They don't want to hear Mm -hmm. my opinions. They don't want to hear my gifting. They don't want to to learn from me. They don't think I have any value or worth Mm -hmm. or importance or education and They'll, they'll say that because they read Paul's verses as something that's applicable to our churches today. And in most cases, this isn't. I would even probably say all cases. Some people would maybe argue different. But it's because of the culture and the context of the First Corinthians church that Paul is writing to. When we read our Bibles today, those letters were not written to you. God supernaturally has worked across thousands of years where they still mind-bogglingly hold value and importance and weight to us. They are still something that drastically we should shape our life around. But when Paul sat down to write this letter, he was not thinking about someone 2,000 years from now that would read it. He was thinking about the people on the other side of that page that needed that piece of advice. And because of that, he was looking at the First Corinthians church, and he saw a church where the women actually sat separate from men in the worship, the place of worship. So sometimes in these churches, the way they were constructed is that there would be a balcony where the women would be sitting up in the balcony while the men sat on the lower level. And the teacher, the person giving the word or reading from the scriptures, would be on that lower level. So they would be reading or talking or explaining what the text is saying, and the women up in the balcony would get confused. They wouldn't understand because oftentimes in this culture, in this context, the women were less educated than men. That's not saying that's what should be happened. That's just prescriptive of what, or yeah, it's just descriptive of what it was. So the women would be up in the balcony or in a separate context, and they would not understand all of what the the speaker is talking about. So they would start to yell down to their husbands for for answers and questions because they want to understand. They were eager to learn and to know. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine a setting where the speaker is trying to teach? where people are yelling across aisles or yelling down from balconies questions about what he's trying to teach. (laughs) Like, they didn't have microphones, they didn't have speakers, they didn't have sound systems. Like, it would have just turned into a place of chaos. And so Paul here is trying to instruct their church worship in order to help them understand Mm -hmm. the word, help them to grow as a church, help them both, both the women and the men. Because that's Mm -hmm. why he says, if you have something to inquire about, ask your husbands at home. Because he still has value in the women. He still wants the women to learn. Yeah. But the men can't learn to teach the women because if the women, mm-hmm. if they can't hear, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. So it's all based on the context and yeah. what's happening in that specific church yeah. at that specific time. So at Grace Point, you can come <laughs> and you can speak your mind. Please sing the word. Please ask, ask the questions and, and bring everything you've got to the table because we, we want to hear what you got to say. Just don't yell in the middle of... Brennan preaching. Yeah, that would be distracting. <laughs> I mean, and that's what he ultimately, that's what yeah, he said. Contextually he's in First yeah. Corinthians, he's talking about the order of worship. Yeah. Yeah. This is important. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. We're doing good. We're crushing. We're crushing uh, time. So, here's we're crushing where, sexism. Uh, <laughs> here's where we want to go next. 
These are passages that people have commonly thrown out to say, this is where the Bible is sexist. But we want to take passages and turn around and say, well, actually, this is where the Bible shows worth for women, and it gives them positions of authority and leadership, and it gives them positions where they can use their their, their skills and their giftings, and they can they lead others, and uh, Jesus just pours into women. So let's look at a couple of those real quick and just show where Jesus or the early church really gave women a ton of worth. Love it. Let's yeah. do it. I mean, <laughs> you start with even the idea of John 3.16. It doesn't say the men who believe, hmm. right? It, doesn't, it says whoever believes in Jesus. Like it's, So it's just even there in and of itself, there is an understanding of equality between mm-hmm. men and women and all people in general. Um, Jesus continually not only allowed, but I think gave incredible voice, voice, uh, empowerment, leadership, to women in his ministry. Like a lot, it's <clears throat> people want to point to Jesus say he was sexist because he had 12 disciples and they were all male. Well, that's also a, 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 a an issue within the, not an issue, but a time of the culture, the history mm-hmm. of what was happening, what disciple meant, of what it meant to follow a rabbi, of what that looked like. But if, if Jesus was sexist, he wouldn't allow women to sit at his feet to hear him preach and teach. Mm-hmm. There were times, if you look at when, when Jesus is quoting Psalms in the New Testament and in the Gospels, Psalms were the book that women were to memorize, where the Torah was the book that men were to memorize. And so he used Psalms because there was women in his in his in his setting so of good. teaching mm-hmm. to. And that's so it's incredibly beautiful. You get Mary and Martha, who like, like he gets to this house and I don't know which one sat in front of Jesus. Mary. Mary sat literally sat in the position of a disciple, meaning in a position of a learner, to sit there and hear from Jesus to be poured into, to be taught. If Jesus was sexist, she couldn't take that position yeah. in front of him. If she didn't think culturally, that women, she would have been able, oh yeah, would have been crushed. Yeah, mm-hmm. and probably was behind the scenes. Yeah. Pharisees probably had a little something to say about yeah, it. They're probably mad. Probably. And so it's just like if if he was sexist, if he wanted to go with what culturally was appropriate at the time, he wouldn't have allowed her to mm-hmm. take a position of a disciple in mm-hmm. front of his feet. But yeah. he, but she was, mm-hmm. and it's just. It's and he, not only did he just allow it, but yeah, he actually good. corrected. It, her sister, sister who was said, not she's doing the, the right the, thing. The you know? So it was, it was yeah, not only so accepting it, but oh, empowering it and saying so it was good. good. So good. I like playing off of that. So you said Jesus had 12 disciples, but that word disciple is used in a couple different contexts because mm-hmm. yes, he had 12 male disciples, but he also had a group of 70 yeah. disciples. Yeah. Yeah. And in those 70, it's it's made up of consistently yes. affirmed that there was women in that group of 70. Probably. Who, who would travel with him everywhere mm-hmm. he went. So they were not the inner 12, again, because of culture, but they were a part of the people oh, yeah. who were consistently supporting and following Jesus in ministry. Mm-hmm. What else? What else oh, did man. Jesus do? Uh, I mean, you get the story of um, in Matthew 26 where the woman, Jesus comes to a house and the woman comes and pours out her perfume on his feet and, and dries his feet with her hair. She does this crazy bold act um, that people around her were correcting and saying, you shouldn't have done this. Like you're wasting, you know, your perfume or whatnot. And Jesus says, no, like she has honored me. She has done, she has sacrificed for me and done something that is pleasing in my sight. Um, And so while other people were telling her she was wrong, diminishing her, saying culturally she was in a bad position, Jesus said, no, like what she has done is honorable. And then maybe one more in this section about Jesus, and then we'll move to the early church. But in Matthew 28, when Jesus is resurrected, the first people he appears to in every single gospel are women. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's confusing because sometimes one gospel says this certain women, yeah. or sometimes it says a group of women. or So it's a little bit different, but we can explain that in another podcast. But every single time, the first people Jesus appears to are women. And so in this context, in this culture, women didn't have value. 
their voice wasn't listened to. So this is radical that who he chose to spread and to carry mm-hmm. his the message of his resurrection was a group of females. Yeah. Like everybody, like even the disciples, when the females show up, they don't believe them. Yeah. Yeah. They come <laughs> and they, they're the ones who are sexist that don't understand that these women have something to say. Yeah. But Jesus is the one that gave him something to say. And that's I think so you ha- good. So we have good. to hit Luke 8. Okay, yeah, you can hit yeah. that one. The support that came, the way that Jesus and the disciples were able to not have to do work and do ministry was because they needed support, right? They needed resources, they needed help, food, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that place to stay. Literally, Luke 8 tells us that happened because of women. Uh, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's, literally Herod's business manager, and then Susanna. Uh, Susanna. Uh, and then it says, and many others were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Mm-hmm. The ministry of Jesus was financially supported by women. Yeah. And here's where that flips the script, because Crush. if Jesus would have just left and he would have been the one who was usurping culture and yeah. changing the times, then you would have seen the early church go back to the way that was yes. broken, mm-hmm. right? They've been trained their whole lives to be valuing men over women, but that's not what happens. When the Spirit is poured out and the church is born, they actually continue in the mission of Jesus of ascribing women worth in in positions of leadership and power and value. So in the upper room, when they're gathered, they're they're praying and they're fasting and they're waiting for this day of Pentecost when the Spirit would be poured out. Women are there. When In Acts 2, when the Spirit is actually poured out, it says men and women will receive the Holy Spirit. Sons and daughters will, prof- will prophesy. Yeah. So it's not and just given... Old Testament prophecy given yeah. that yeah. was being fulfilled right now in it's this moment. It's not mm-hmm. just men that received the Spirit of God, but men and women, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're equipped. Or when you look at the Philippi church, when uh, in Acts 16, Paul is going and he's trying to establish this church in Philippi, and when he writes the letter of Philippians, it's to that church. But when he goes, there's yeah. no synagogue there. There's no place for him to go and to start preaching. So instead he goes down to the water and down at the water is where the women were gathering and they were practicing their spiritual ceremonies down there because they didn't have anywhere else. And so he goes down to this group of women who were down there and he starts to preach the word to him and he finds Lydia. And Lydia takes that group of women with the word of God, with the Holy Spirit and plants a church in her home. And so she pastors this church in her home, which becomes the Philippians church, which Paul writes a letter back to that we still read today. That's because of Lydia. That's because Paul saw value in her and started to invest his relationship in her. Like he wouldn't have left that church in her care if he didn't trust her and want her to lead. Yep. Anything Mm -hmm. else? I think that's good for Acts. You want to move to Romans. We can. I like, I like Romans talks about Paul again, writing the letter of Romans and very end, Paul decides to like move away from theology and start talking about his friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is actually really, really <laughs> He's cool. Like, Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then he says in, in, in Romans 61, I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, sister. Last time I checked is female. Yeah. Okay. Sweet. <laughs> um, and he says, who is a deacon in the church? Like, that's a position of leadership because at the time that this was written, most likely he would have probably already written his first letter to Timothy, which addresses what a deacon is and the importance of a deacon. So even if you go to 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. Mm-hmm. They must not be heavy drinkers. Or design. So this idea of they must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live in a clear conscience. That's a position of authority. Mm-hmm. And so like some debate. In the like in the church, is this does deacon mean servant or minister? Like this is a minister mm-hmm. of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he addresses Phoebe as a deacon. Yeah. It's beautiful. Can nobody so, else hear the name Phoebe and not think Smelly Cat? Oh, always. I've never I always heard go straight cat. to no, friends. No, you hundred percent. You've never heard it. Never. Have you never, you watched, never watched Friends. friends? No. 
Oh, Ben. What? How have we not talked about this? Dude, this is like your generation. Uh, how dare you, first of all. It was before my time. I was watching SpongeBob at that time because that's how old I was. There you go. Okay. I'm an office person. Smelly cat. No. Smelly cat. Okay. We do have to move on, though, because we're, we're continuing. So we've answered, I hope, sufficiently the ideas. The Bible sexist. Resounding, adamant, nope. No. The people Bible, are sexist. People yes. are sexist. God is not sexist. Jesus is not such sexist. The church is not supposed to be sexist. Super, yeah, we have so. baggage. We have issues. We have people who are broken, yep. who are leading aspects yep. of the church and people. And so, yes, there are areas and there are different places where you can point to sexism yep. in mm-hmm. church history. Yes. Like, we'll own yeah. that. We Christians need to repent of that. Yes. We, we failed. To. We yeah, we, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. But resounding overwhelmingly, no, the Bible is not sexist. Yeah. But is it racist? Because that's the flip side of like another aspect of the question is, okay, sure. Like, yeah, we see where it actually does ascribe worth to women and and it holds them on an equal playing field. But there was slavery in the Bible. It's talked about pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. When the Civil War was starting here in America and they were fighting over slaves in America, people who owned slaves were predominantly white Christians. And so they would use the Bible as a text to support their owning of slaves. But it also, in the Bible, it talks about racial divides, and it talks about people groups that would be pinned against each other. And there's just all of this tension that we see when it comes to this. So how do we explain that? Do you want to talk about the Genesis 9 one? You're the one to do the research on it. Yeah, sure. I think it's it's great. So I looked up when I was doing research for this podcast, because I do not have all the answers to everything. Um, (laughs) So I was looking up, what were the texts that those white Christian males would use to support their slavery owning in America pre-Civil War? Like, what was it that they were reading that I just cannot see? And one of the texts that they would read and consistently throw out to to support their owning of slaves was Genesis 9, 18 through 27. And in this passage, Noah has three sons. It's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, I think is his last name. I don't know. I could be butchering them. I do know one of them is named Ham. Ham. Which is hilarious. (laughs) Uh, So he has this son named Ham, and Noah gets drunk, which he shouldn't do, and he like passes out naked somewhere. And so Ham, his son, finds him, and he sees his dad naked, which is enough to scar a man, but (laughs) still, this is what happens. So... In that time, in that culture, I don't understand it. I don't get it. That was a position of shame and of of sin for Ham to see his father like that. His other two brothers, when they found out their father was naked, they took a cloak, they walked backwards, they make sure not to see him, and they covered him up. But Ham didn't do that. So God puts a curse on Ham and Ham's son that his descendants would be slaves to his brothers because of his actions and seeing his father naked. Again, I don't for sure understand the naked piece or like why he would have stumbled into the room. I don't understand it all. But what I do know is that the church, when they came over to America and the people who were claiming to be Christians, used this text because they saw Ham and his descendants were cursed to slavery, and they extended this and fabricated that his descendants actually were the people of Africa. And so when this was written, those people would have been cursed, cast out, and they would have moved all over the continent of Africa. So when they were taking African slaves, they were justifying it and saying, these are the sons of Ham. These are the people who are cursed by God to be slaves. They've always supposed to be slaves. We're just living out what God did in Genesis 9. 
However, it's fabricated, it's false, it's not true. They made up that idea that Ham's descendants were slaves and that Ham's descendants were supposed to be the African people. There's mm -hmm. no connection, there's no legitimacy, there's no backing to that claim. Yeah, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. It was terrible. It was something they took in scripture. Still is and terrible. Yeah. Still. And they, and they extended it to this people group that without any kind of logic or reason or evidence so they wanted to keep power wanted to control and wanted success yeah so they yeah. used people but it's yeah. total bogus agreed what else did the, what else is bad that we what else do people think is bad that they see in text that we could help explain yeah so exodus 21 uh the idea of servant and slavery there's different types of slavery um and what's uh, and it, depending on different contexts different times throughout history of of, of the bible i, I want to go to the ephesians one but i'll do this one uh, verse 2, 21 says, If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. But if the servant declares, I love my master, my wife, my children, do not want to go free, then this master must take him in before the judges. He shall take him to the door, the doorpost, and pierce his ear with an, with an owl. Then he will be his servant for life. And so what you see is a servant who has recognized a place within the family of where he is serving underneath. Um I want to talk a little bit about just the year of Jubilee and what that means. Mm -hmm. yeah. A lot of times, and, and and I love even the way the New Testament talks about giving and how we're supposed to like give financially. It doesn't talk about percentage, but proportion. And what that means is there are seasons in your life that you'll be able to give more or to give it all. And there's going to be seasons where you're not actually able to give anything. What happened here in Exodus 21, what's happening is some families didn't have any resources, had mm -hmm. nothing. Crops grew dry. They didn't have any land. Something got taken away. Someone died. Head of household died. And they just they needed to figure out literally how to survive. So they would indenture themselves into the service of another family. They would become they slaves. They would literally yeah. become. So that's why the word slave is used. But yeah. it's a servant to yeah. serve under. And yeah. so a contract is written up. You he serves for you for six years. On the seventh one, you are supposed to. Period. Let him go free. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Allow him to go. So it wasn't a lifetime thing. It's not a you own this person. It literally is this person just within. A worker for you yeah. is what yeah. this means. And then what's cool is if the family loved it and they love being a part of the, the the servant family, the slave family, using that language, if they love being a part of the family, they were able to be able to be a part of them for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And they literally then were adopted into it. And then there's moments that you talk about even in the New Testament of what that actually means is if a, if a couple or, or a guy, whatever, he owns all this land, he has these resources, didn't have any kids, didn't have any sons, and he had a slave, a servant, he was actually able to and willing to, because of how they treated their servants, give him, adopt him as his own and give him literally the land that he possessed, mm -hmm. the possessions that he had. Mm -hmm. And so just the way that slavery was used in the Old Testament and is, or was, yeah, at the time, how it was viewed, how they treated people is different that we know mm -hmm. and what we learn even in the history of American slavery mm -hmm. is different. Well, and that word yeah. slave is actually in the he in the let me say Greek, it's doulos or doulos. I'm probably saying it wrong, but it's it could be translated consistently as bond servant. Bond, yeah. mm -hmm. So where they've talked about slavery, there can always there, there can almost always be this translation change where we use the word bond servant. So when Paul is opening in Romans one, he says Paul and a servant of Jesus Christ. It's the same, same word, word doulos that could be translated slave. But Paul is not seeing himself as a slave in chains and bondage and abuse to Jesus. He sees himself as a bondservant, one who has been bought with a price, who's working a job to a good master. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the word is supposed to be. And when we see the word slave, we're instantly put into yeah. our context. Well, we we read it yeah. with our own hermeneutic or our own uh, paradigm to understand this is what we think of the word slave. We see American slavery. We see abuse. Mm -hmm. We see the mistreatment and 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 horrible things that happened to people mm -hmm. 
And so we put that in the scripture. But the word slave in scripture consistently is not supposed to be seen in that yeah. light. It's supposed to be seen in the light of Exodus 21. And, and, the, and the Ephesians text. Yeah, and the Ephesians text. Yeah. So there I'll jump into the Ephesians text. It's Ephesians 6, 5 through 7. So it's right after Paul has instructed the households. So Jana was just <laughs> mm-hmm. talking about yeah. that. It talks about how husbands and wives should relate to each other. It talks about how kids should relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Then it talks so about how parents. slaves or mm-hmm. servants should relate back to the family. So just the fact that this is included at all shows that they were a member of the household. Yep. Yeah. Like, sit with that for a second. Yeah, the context is household family. Household family. Yes. They were not considered property. Yep. They were considered a member of the household. And therefore, Paul says, as a member of this household, this is how you're supposed to act. So in verses 5 through 7, he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and, and with serenity, or sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves do the will of God in your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord, not people. And that word fear there is not the fear we think of as like they're scared of their master, but rather it's a reverence. It's saying, hey, you have power over me. You have a position of authority. I'm going to just respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then after that, when people read that, they'll say, well, Paul is telling slaves they should just keep doing what they're doing. They should continue to be in bondage to this person. Again, take a step back, see that the word slave really is servant. They've chosen to be there for this period of time, and they're free to go after a period of time. But also, you could continue to read, and in verse 9, it talks about the master. And it says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that the that he who is their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Mm -hmm. And so it tells the master, then it rebukes the master and it says, you must treat your slaves in the same way you'd want to be treated. In the Mm -hmm. same way you treat your family, your kids, your wife, in the same way you as the master would want to be treated. It's like the golden rule. That's how you treat your slave. And and in the Greco-Roman society, there was permission for masters quote unquote to treat slaves any way that they wished mm-hmm. so these mm-hmm. again he's writing to non-jewish people in the jewish context of what slave bond servant is it's a part of the household family now in this him even put like and brennan he says him putting this section of scripture right after children's obey your parents is giving automatically servants slaves bond servants a position of authority within authority i don't know if it's the right one but a position in general within the family yeah and so yeah. he's saying and he says don't threaten them for a reason because there were masters who threatened their slaves mm-hmm. because in the it was culturally appropriate for certain masters to do whatever they wanted with their slaves mm-hmm. it's not what God calls us to. It's not what the Jews, mm-hmm. the Jewish people practiced. Yeah. And so he's getting them and helping them understand as now Greek and Roman people, hey, this is what we do here. Mm-hmm. I know that that's appropriate. And you're going to see your neighbor maybe treat his servant like that in Christ. That's not what we do. Mm-hmm. And just mm-hmm. calling them out. And I think it's huge. Yeah. So, good. so yeah. people also say this, and Jana, maybe you can help me. Yeah. Here, but people will throw the idea that Jesus or Paul never came out and outright rebuked <laughs> slave owning, which... <laughs> Arguably, they did. But what would you say to that? Like, Jesus is not quoted anywhere saying, mm-hmm. don't own slaves. Yeah. Well, again, a lot of the time when people use that as a defense for why the Bible is racist, they're, again, coming at the view of slavery from our American understanding of what that means. So Jesus didn't say that because that type of slavery had not existed yet hmm. to that extent. Mm-hmm. But additionally, there's a lot of things that are not recorded or things that are recorded are not recorded that Jesus... I'm saying this so bad. The sentence, I'm butchering it. Jesus is not recorded rebuking a lot of things that we believe are wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that just because it's not recorded that he didn't say it, oh, he accepts it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the case at all. It's just not 
recorded that yeah. we have. Yeah. I mean, man, that was hard. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> we could get out our again. list and tell you all the things that we think are wrong that Jesus never directly mm-hmm. said. Yeah. But not everything Jesus said is recorded. John talks about that. It's how yeah. he ends his book. If I wrote down everything Jesus had said and done, the 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 ink would fill the sky or something like that. Yeah. It's like it's impossible to record everything Jesus did and said in ministry. Mm-hmm. But they did their rest. Yeah. Otherwise, you want to talk about the Paul? Yes. One of my favorite letters, Philemon Young, is <laughs> <laughs> Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. Well, at least you know Paul's favorite type of steak, am I right? No, no oh one, my gosh. Paul was a meat eater. Um, no, he, he <laughs> sorry, I just, I screwed this whole thing up. Um, Philemon, how do you guys say it? Philemon. Philemon. See, see, oh, that's I, probably no, see, right. That's see, I've I heard say. it a million different ways. I like Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll go with Philemon. I like that better. Philemon was the host. He was basically the pastor of the church in Colossae. Kind of. I mean, he was at least the host family. His, yeah. his house is where they met. Yeah. Well, he was also a owner of a slave called Onesimus. And what happened is Onesimus, at some point when, when Paul came and, and started the church in Colossae, People are coming to know Jesus, right? Well, Onesimus is one of those persons who came to know Jesus. And Onesimus and Paul must have grown in some sort of relationship because Onesimus runs away from filet mignon and he <laughs> runs and goes to find Paul in prison. So he hears his friend is in prison. He leaves his master, his household where he is serving, goes and finds Paul to encourage him, to be a friend, right? Mm-hmm. And so Paul, in that, writes this letter to Philemon. And what he does is he is encouraging him to accept back Onesimus, who was his slave, to accept him back as a brother in Christ. So what he's saying is, in context where slave and mastery happen, here's how you're to treat each other, which we were talking about Ephesians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this letter, probably one of the last ones he's written, because he literally addressed it and says, this is a request from an old man, which I love. <laughs> I think it's in, I don't remember which verse, maybe nine, but that, which is one of my favorite parts about it. Just like, hey man, I've lived a long life. I know I'm super old, but like, I'm just, and, and I know you respect me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm asking you this Grandpa, as a friend. Grandpa Paul. Grandpa Paul. <laughs> Papa, Papa Paul. Pa, Papa, yeah, that's right. Papa Paul. Like as, as your fellow brother in Christ, as one who planted the church, he doesn't say this, but this is just the respect that is coming from mm-hmm. this. And he asks and requests, I want you to receive back. Because what he could have done legally, uh, Philemon, could have killed Onesimus, could have thrown him out in the street, as again, in the contract of slave, could have done this, mm-hmm. in the, especially in that culture. And what, because Paul is anti-slavery in general, he just says, I want you to receive him back and not just receive him back as a slave, actually. No, I wanted you to go a step further. Mm-hmm. I want you to receive him back as a brother in Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if that doesn't speak against slavery, I don't know what does. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's a beautiful, I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So once we talk about slavery, we're real quick, just going to talk about some of what we see is the racial, and I put air quotes around racial, um, divides in scripture. So what, what would you guys say about like, it consistently looks like we use these terms Jew and Gentile. Mm-hmm. So like it's two different people groups, not necessarily that they were different races. Um, like they both could have been white or probably Middle Eastern. Definitely were not white. Uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely <laughs> but, Middle Eastern. You know, like it was two different people groups and mm-hmm. it kind of looks like they're pitted against each other sometimes. Like how do we explain mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So the Jews um, are the Israelites, God's chosen people that he has throughout the Old Testament. That's a story of them, basically. Um, he has described these people as his chosen people. And then Gentile just refers to anybody who's not that. So that's just like everybody else. So if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. So it's not like... So a couple of Gentiles sitting yeah, around so, the table? So, 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 so Gentile nation. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't necessarily like 
the contrast we would experience today of like white versus black, yeah. but it was like this is God's chosen nation, his chosen people, and the Gentiles are those outside of it. And so the reason that this really existed um, mostly was that God had called these specific people to be his, that he planned to uh, work his redemption power through, and there were people that were outside of that, because mm-hmm. that just happens, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it just does, you know? Yeah, like, it just does. There is the 12th. Yes. But, but the beauty of what Jesus did and what was so significant is that in his saving, he came to save all peoples, Jew and Gentile. He frequently uses that. Um, you get the story of, um, I mean, even in like the story of the Samaritan, who is an outcast, who is not one of these, you know, within the elite mm-hmm. nationality or yeah. race, if you wanted to use that term. Maybe that's a bad term you shouldn't use. We can, but, we can go into that, but go, you keep but, going. But like the story of, of this person who is outside of the chosen people, yeah. like still does something and is still honored and, and, and is Christ-like in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think lost it's my thought, but no, it's, it's in Jew and Gentile, like the Jewish people saw themselves as the chosen race, and you can see how that corrupted them. Yeah, like look mm-hmm. at like how Jesus talks about the Pharisees; these were the elite of the Jewish. You can see there had been this entitlement, mm-hmm. and he consistently pushes back against that. Yeah. And when it comes to Samaritans, they didn't just they weren't just outside God's chosen people. At times, the Jews openly disliked them. Yeah. They were like their enemy. They did not want to do anything with the Samaritans. They wouldn't even let the Samaritans come and worship in Jerusalem, which mm-hmm. was like the holy city. So when Jesus turns around and says the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan is the one, not the priest, not the teacher of the law, not the elder, mm-hmm. but the Samaritan is the one who helps. Like that's appalling to the, the Jewish listeners because they're like, mm-hmm. the Samaritans are good for nothing. They're, they don't have any, yeah. they don't, why would that person be the good one? But Jesus is here saying, yo, I'm throwing out your divides. I'm throwing out your caste system. I'm throwing out your hatred. We're going to be reconciled in me to bring about the new church. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Romans 1.16, I'm unchained of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to all people first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And there it's just chronological order. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus came to God's chosen people. One, he was Jewish. Heads up. Mm-hmm. Like, light bulb. Just in case you didn't know. <laughs> Wasn't white. Uh, and he came to the Jewish people, to God's chosen people, as mm-hmm. he said. And so then there were some Jewish people who accepted Jesus as Messiah, as Lord. And then, therefore, because Jesus is for all people, he went to those who were not Jews, as Jana said, it's called Gentiles. So then it was first Jews, and then guess what? We're going to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. And you see Paul move, Paul's movement. You see, I mean, yeah, the woman at the well. Yeah. Like, went yeah. literally first missionary, was mm-hmm. not a Jew. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It's yeah. incredible. And so I, I just love that order does not necessarily indicate the importance of value in this text or in text in general. Um, and I, I like, I, oh, how much time we got? Not much. Okay, you, you go next. Um, I just think it's more. cool. Like Paul is like the missionary all star. Like probably the greatest missionary yeah. of all time. Yeah. And his specific yeah. role yeah, is role. to go to he the Gentiles. To, yeah. yeah. So like you don't send your all star missionary. You don't send your best player <laughs> to go engage a people group you don't care about. You send mm-hmm. them to engage the people you, you desperately care about. Yeah. Yeah. And the Jews were taken care of. They had Peter. They had uh, other apostles who were being sent to them. James. So then the other two other things are, there's two other things we'll quickly look at. But one is when you look at racial divides or national mm-hmm. divides in the Bible, people will look at the Old Testament and they'll see how like intermarriage was frowned upon or how like 
Egypt and Israel didn't get along, or Babylon and Israel didn't get along, or Persia or Israel didn't get along, and there was these people groups that were divided, and there was tension there. But oftentimes, God was using those separations of nations to protect the Israelite people. So in Genesis 24, Abraham is unwilling to let Isaac marry the people they're living amongst, and he Mm -hmm. instead goes and gets Rebecca. It's Rebecca, right? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's Rebecca because Rachel is Rachel uh, is Israel Jacob, Jacob's wife. Jacob, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so he goes and gets Rebecca to marry for Isaac from his home people group. Yeah. But the reason he does that is because anytime you link people together, they start to meld beliefs. So if Isaac would have married, say, someone who from the tribe they were living among, who were non non Israelite people, they would have been non God Yahweh followers their marriage could have corrupted Isaac and helped lead him away from following God yeah, as sovereign. Mm-hmm. And so really, otherwise you can look at the Old Testament, you can say, well, they practice polygamy. But just because it happens in the Old Testament doesn't mean God necessarily says that's the way it should be or that's mm-hmm. even correct. Yep. So frowning upon intermarriage of different tribes and races, because it happened in the Old Testament, doesn't mean that's God saying, this is what I would like to happen. Yep. And mm-hmm. I'm going to push back, and not, and not push back, I agree. It's when we're talking about this, I think race is the wrong term. Yeah. I, it's yeah. not addressing races. Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't address races. It addresses yeah, nations right. and tribes and languages. Mm-hmm. So even there, when it says Abraham's only let Isaac marry who? People they what lived around that probably looked like them. Yeah. If you're living around them, if if we're defining race as a commonality of physical trait, mm-hmm. which I think is what race is. Yeah. Yeah. In my right, I mean that's the definition I, of it. I, think, I have no I idea. I think so. So like there, there's a reality of racism. Racism does exist. That is real. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Bible doesn't even really attempt to address race, I think shows that it's one not racist, but it addresses nations and tribes because there's a difference in faith. Mm-hmm. There's a difference in culturally how they live, what they prioritize or don't prioritize, and that's where it's understanding like, hey, there's different nations, there's different tribes, and that is good. But it's a Russell Reagan. They all still need Jesus. And I think that's also super important because I think for me right now, it just clicked that even when I still think about slavery, I think about it in the context of one racial group. Yes. But when they're talking about slavery here, or even when they're slaves throughout the Old Testament or New Testament, it never never was a a people group that was ascribed to slavery. It would have been someone who looked like you, lived like you, was a part of your culture, a part of your nation, that was probably your slave. Mm -hmm. Like not an entire people group that is oppressed. Like that's my own ignorance. That's what we know. That's what we did in in American history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise... Great place to end the Great Commission. Yeah, I think that's always a great place to end. It's how, it's how Jesus ended. Yeah, Je- <laughs> Jesus in his last paragraph of Matthew, when he's instructing the disciples to go, he says, "Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations." And in his last command, in the Great Commission, in what his mission is that he hands to the church is to go to all people who all look different, who speak different, who have different cultures, and spread the gospel there. Make disciples there. Teach them what I have taught you. And that's just beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's value of every single person. Uh, women, different color, different nation. So that's a great place to end because Jesus ends there. That's, that's you. Uh, we, we, Jesus. Jana said, hey, do you think we should split this topic into two different podcasts? And I said, nah, 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 we'll finish it in time. <laughs> and we did not finish in time. But if you're still with us, thanks for tuning in and we hope you learned something. So peace out. Bye. Bye. Bye.